Thanks for tuning in today. Please visit NemoursWellBeyond.org to catch all our episodes and sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also use the voicemail feature on the website to leave a message with your episode ideas or questions. You just might be featured on an upcoming episode of the show. Without further ado, let's go. Well Beyond Medicine. Welcome to Well Beyond Medicine, the Nemours Children's Health Podcast. Each week, we'll explore anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. I'm your host, Carol Vassar, and now that you're here, let's go. Let's go, oh, oh, well beyond medicine. Dr. Babar Hassan is an associate professor and a consultant pediatric cardiologist at the Department of Pediatric and Child Health at Aga Khan University in Karachi, Pakistan. We sat down with him at the World Congress of Pediatric Cardiology and Cardiac Surgery in Washington, D.C. recently to talk about artificial intelligence from a global perspective, development, research, and clinical implementation. How is this happening around the world? And what impact is it having? Here's Dr. Hassan. So that's an excellent question. And in fact, we recently published some work around this. And what we showed that if you look at the publications coming out around AI in healthcare, close to 90% of what comes out from high-income countries. So just to start off, there is very little data coming out from the low-to-middle-income countries. Whilst if one was to think about the applicability of uh, AI or the use of AI from a clinical standpoint, in my personal view, the most use of AI is actually in low-to-middle-income countries. So one can, from the start-off, see kind of the disparity and where the need is and where the data is coming out. So when, and so that's what I'll, I'll talk about research. If you look at even the data that comes out of the high-income country, majority of them actually are what I call efficacy uh, research. It, so it shows that a model works, and the model has good prediction, for example. But effectiveness, does it really work in the real-world setting? N- very few data, actually, very few papers, or very, f- a little, very few work actually has transcribed into real-world world impact or effectiveness. And I think that's a huge gap that we have to re- understand as we develop AI and stuff. So that's where the need is. Now, you say the data is not coming from the under-resourced countries. Is it because AI is not in use there? Is it because it hasn't been implemented? Where is the disparity in terms of data versus the high-income countries and the, uh, the under-resourced countries? That's an excellent question, and I think there are multiple causes to that. I think, uh, yes, the first being that maybe there is a lack of awareness of what AI means and what the impact of AI is and how can it actually help us become better clinicians at times. But the other big thing, and that's an experience that I've had with a lot of the work that we've done in AI, is actually the, the skills or the human resource that is required from the technical part of it. So people who can run meaningful algorithms, you know, so just simple kind of machine learning algorithms like SGBoost or whatever, without actually having the context in mind, without actually having a clarity of what is being trying to solve. Uh, I think that is a big, huge gap that, that we see in low to middle income country. 
And then, especially in, in healthcare AI, you'll have the engineers who are doing a lot of the AI work and a lot of the computing and all of that. And then you have the physicians who are saying, hey, can you solve this problem for me? But that person in the middle who kind of bridges both, who understands the medical lingo and also understands what the engineer wants and bridges that gap, I think there's a huge dearth of such people in low to middle income country. If you were to ask me what is the one leading cause of data not coming out from low to middle income country, it is lack of that human resource that can actually do those high quality AI work. But once that gap is filled for, by, by whatever means, I can tell you that some of the most meaningful work in AI will come from the low middle income countries. Let's talk about some of these under-resourced countries. Is AI being implemented and can it be implemented for the purpose of clinical analysis? How is it working its way into some of the under-resourced countries? Yeah. Again, if you see what is the healthcare burden in our country, right? You have a big population you have uh, disease uh, that are pro proportionally way higher than in the West, just purely because of the fact that the majority of the population resides in the low to middle income country. Just to give you a simple fact, four countries in this world contributes to 50% of congenital heart disease kids being born annually. And those four countries are Pakistan, India, Indonesia, and China, just purely because of the birth rate. China has controlled its birth rate now. But, you know, just the sheer population, the birth rate, and, the, the, and naturally the kids who are born with heart disease, 1% of them uh, will have heart disease. So that number itself is one of the big issues that we have. And then the lack of resources. So how does one bridge that gap, you know? And I think that's when you start really looking at those contextual problems and trying to understand how do I bridge the gap is when you'll start bringing meaningful AI in. So what do I mean by that in a practical sense? Working in the public sector, I have huge volumes and I have a huge attrition of cardiac ICU nurses. You train somebody and then literally a month or two later, they'll go off to the Middle East because they get better pay there. So is there a way in which now I have a lesser trained, lesser skilled ICU nurse who's standing at a very complicated post-op patient, but the, that gap in her knowledge or his or her knowledge is bridged by AI? So those kind of use cases will actually have a very strong impact in our part of the world. And I, there is a term used for it. It's known as task sharing. So you basically bring in models, bring in those solutions that can help us task share and really augment the ability of the frontline health worker in being a better triage, better ability of, of them to better screen, better uh, ability for them to pick up the problem much earlier, and then escalate uh, the care, uh, either at their level or by pulling in somebody uh, who, who's more highly skilled but less in number. But to be clear, this is not replacing a human being. It's replacing a knowledge gap. Absolutely. See, that's the thing is that what many of the physicians that I've I speak to many of my colleagues, there's this kind of fear that, oh, AI is going to take over our jobs and AI is going to push us off and whatever of that. And that's not true. You know, if you look at artificial narrow intelligence, artificial journal intelligence, AGI is, I think, many years away. And when that happens, we'll solve that problem then. But I think artificial narrow intelligence is just the term of it. It's, it's literally narrow. And 
problems in managing a patient is not just one linear way in which you manage a patient. There are many aspects of how do you manage the patient. Just their socioeconomic background will completely change their outcomes. So AI definitely cannot replace the human uh, who is standing at the bedside. But definitely they can help us be better at what we do. And I think that, uh, that partnership, if I may call it, if we accept that partnership, that it's a colleague of mine, AI is a colleague of mine, who will help me get better at what I'm doing. And I think that, ex- that will in- improve the acceptability of this newer tool, if you may call it. Now, you kind of allude to AI bridging gaps. Can it also help with health inequity? Can it help bridge that gap in some way? Absolutely. One has to understand how these algorithms are created, how these algorithms are trained, what data went into it, you know, and that clarity has to happen. That's some of the work that we have been doing around use of fetal Dopplers to predict high-risk fetuses in pregnant women. And this is the work that is being done in Pakistan. And in fact, we did a very interesting comparison of a population out in a high-income country, again, around prediction of babies who will be born or fetuses who will be born being small at birth. And then we did it for the population in Pakistan, What is interesting is that the AI algorithm will behave very differently based on what data goes into it. So I think as long as we understand those limitations, any scientific paper has a limitation section, right? So that's like kind of the limitation section of of work around AI. If we understand that, if we understand that biases can be created, just the fact that there is a computer and an algorithm that will basically decide uh, a therapy and the algorithm is unbiased actually may not be true because you have to understand what data went into it. So if we understand the limitations of what goes into it and actively address those limitations, if we bring people from the low middle income country as equal partners in developing contextually related AI solutions, definitely it has a role and it will definitely improve the healthcare inequity. There's no, no doubt about that. And it sounds like what you're saying are actually safeguards against bias moving forward. Is, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely, absolutely. I think, again, if the focus is improving the lives of, of a patient, one of my dear friends, Divyani, always says this very interesting things. And she says that the future of a child should not be determined by imaginary lines on the globe. It's become our vision statement now, you know, it's so powerful. And I think it's interesting because if one really has that focus in mind, then whatever we are doing, whether it's a randomized controlled trial or whether it's work around AI or virtual reality or whatever, it will evolve. It will evolve with all those principles that will actually alleviate inequity, principles of equal partnership, principles of hearing what the other side's problem is, not just coming in with a parachute approach that, hey, you know what? This is an algorithm. Why don't you take it and this will work in Pakistan? It, ain't, it will not work in Pakistan until and unless we really put in the effort of, of mentoring. I was in a session this morning and I said, you know, we should move away from the term training into the term mentorship because mentorship is a deeper connection. It's a much deeper connection between two people or two organizations where when the challenges really come, when the roadblocks really come, you're going to overcome them because you have that deeper connection. And those words of supervision or training may actually be very superficial. And as soon as you hit the first roadblock, the tendency will be, okay, I exit. 
you know. But you have that connection, so you're more willing to stay and work together. Absolutely, absolutely. Before we finish up today, I do want to ask you, you have a grant from the Gates Foundation. They're all about global health. Mm. This is about global health. And you are working towards reducing infant mortality in Pakistan using AI. Tell us about that. So thank you very much for bringing that up. And I think uh, what is interesting is that um, when we started the journey, this journey, um, the very first thing that happened was that everybody who was collaborating on the work actually came to Pakistan. They went into those communities where the problems lied. They actually really felt what the need was. So that was the starting. And then we really mapped out what I call the care continuum. So if somebody is being diagnosed in the community, we have to create a care pathway. You just can't diagnose somebody and just leave them out there. And, oh, it's your problem now. That was another very concerted effort that we did around any project that we were building, that we will create that care continuum. So we started off with, okay, fine, is there a way of predicting which fetuses will be at a higher risk when they are born for death, for example, for having issues like small for gestational age? And we use fetal Dopplers, and that's a work that we have been doing quite a bit, and we are now analyzing the waveforms. And the second thing that we did, okay, if the baby is born at birth, is there a way of picking those babies who are at higher risk of dying within the next one month? Right? So we used pulse oximeter, we did something known as the WHO signs and symptoms, we used that, and then we used a clinical care algorithm, an AI algorithm. We didn't go in with this approach that, oh, we're going to bring in an AI tool that will incorporate every data and then just come up with that magic number or magic thing that, oh, this kid is, is at risk. We went in with a sequential approach, as in, you know, use tools that are regularly being used for what their strength is, and then put in the AI on those kids who you want to pick and high risk and stuff. And I think that approach really improves the effectiveness of a tool. So that's another work, and we're about to publish that work also. It's around the pulse oximeter AI work and stuff. And I understand you're presenting on that at the next meeting of the Gates Foundation. Absolutely. Not only that, the fetal work, and uh, a lot of work around improving quality of data collection from low- to middle-income country. Um, and I think that's another kind of policy that we want to really tackle that just because we've not put in, we should put in effort of improving the quality of data coming out of low to middle income countries, especially imaging data, and not give up on it and say, hey, because that is again creating inequity, right? Or you, we're going to do high quality imaging to predict a high risk fetus in the high income country, but you know, a low to middle income country, they can't do imaging, so we're not going to use imaging. We're going to use just clinical data to predict which fetus has, is at a higher risk. No, that's not going to work. So why not work on the solution of how do we bring high quality data in a very effective manner. And, you know, remember what's interesting is maybe the high income country can learn from that. How do you scale the work at such a high volume and get high quality data? There's a lot of learning that can happen. I think the basis of all AI seems to be quality data. Absolutely. Quality data. Well, let me ask you this. How can AI empower the community health worker in some of the under-resourced countries? So great question. Just to give you an example, in Pakistan, um, majority of the population, their very first contact with the healthcare system is actually a community health worker or a lady health worker who may not have all the years of healthcare education that, you know, a physician will have or somebody. And that's a fact that's not going in anywhere. It's going to stay. The population is growing. It's growing in the rural and peri-urban or urban slums. And the very first contact is going to be a community health worker. 
And so how can we now use AI to really augment their ability to screen, to pick a child who's at a higher risk of having an event, and then from there refer them to a, a, a center that can take care of it? Just to give you a kind of an example around this, look at our pulse ox work, for example. Uh, our pulse oximeter AI, it, it gives you a tool, or the tool at the community health level person, to pick a child who is at risk of having an event over the next one month of life, right? So if they have the ability of picking that child and they actually have a clear a kind of SOP or standard operating procedure around how to go about treating or managing that child, imagine the impact that can happen. So as soon as they see that there is something wrong because a very specific tool was giving an abnormal number like pulse oximeter and they refer, the problem that I'm facing up front in, in, a, in a tertiary care center is that I'm, I, I'm receiving kids who are presenting late to me, who are presenting with comorbidities. And immediately you solve that problem, right? Because now the community health worker using a tool which is AI-powered is able to pick that child way early and then send them over. And so when they come to me in my center, they're not as sick as what I would be getting them if they came a week later or 10 days later because nobody was able to pick them. So I think there's a huge role in that manner. Anything else you would like to say, add to our discussion, add to the AI overview, advice you might have for data analysts, maybe who are not clinicians, not in medicine, to, to help bring this to a higher level? I think my biggest advice is, again, your vision should be very clear, and the vision has to be improving the life of a human. I think that may sound like a very kind of higher thought or higher statement, but we need to have those kind of very concrete higher statements that, that we can connect to. You know, why am I doing this work? Why am I going to go through this yet another roadblock that, is, that I'm facing or this challenge or this frustration? Because I'm going to try to improve the life of a human. Around, and, and then owning that everybody on earth is one of us. So with that thing in mind, Anything that you do, creating an AI project, having equal partnership, listening to your low to mid-income country partner and listening to them, not with just like a sympathetic air, but really an empathetic air of what exactly is going on. I think it will really move the needle of use of AI and the impact it can bring to people globally. Well Beyond Medicine. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nemours Well Beyond Medicine podcast with me, Carol Vassar, and our guest, Dr. Babar Hassan, Associate Professor and Consultant Pediatric Cardiologist at the Department of Pediatric and Child Health at Aga Khan University in Karachi, Pakistan. What are your thoughts on AI's potential to change health and medicine on a global scale? Leave us a voicemail at nemoureswellbeyond.org. That's nemoureswellbeyond.org. That's also where you'll find all of our previous podcast episodes, including every podcast in the AI series, which we'll also put in the show notes for each episode. Thanks to our production team, Che Parker, Cheryl Mon, and Allison Misich. Until next time, remember, we can change children's health for good, well beyond medicine. Let's go!